As you've probably noticed, we keep coming back to heroin. Fentanyl and heroin are closely linked, partly because right now, a lot of heroin is being cut with fentanyl. When we were in Mexico, we actually saw the Sinaloa cartel doing exactly that. We've, we've heard all about how there's these bad cuts of, of fentanyl and heroin, and it's seeing this lab and how it's, it's mixed in there, it's really easy to see how they could get the measurement just a little bit wrong and add just a tad too much fentanyl and have it be a deadly batch. Heroin is also the drug that really preceded fentanyl. It's been used in the U.S. for a long time. Every few years, there's a new scare around heroin and how many people are using it. Heroin. It's the reason you put bars on your windows. Can a kid do heroin once and die? He lives from fix to fix. The addict must have his drug. And if he is lucky, he dies early. We can learn from how previous generations dealt with heroin addiction. Because the problems with fentanyl are similar in a lot of ways. While we were doing research, we came across a story that ought to be in any history book about drugs in this country. It starts with a situation that's a lot like what we're facing with fentanyl today, with the government failing people during an opioid epidemic. Heroin back then was a lot cheaper than it is today. And, you know, readily available. This is Panama Alba, who lived in the South Bronx in the 1970s. I mean, you used to go to a club and they saw heroin in the bathrooms. You went to school, they saw heroin in the bathrooms. So it was around all the time. And the shock for me between what I thought I was going to and what I was facing was such that by the age of 14, I was shooting heroin. But in this story, some of those people took matters into their own hands and did something revolutionary. They took over a hospital and created their own drug treatment program. What we were doing was against the law, but we were defying the system. I'm Keegan Hamilton, and this is Painkiller, America's Fentanyl Crisis. Episode 7, Defy the System. So let me take you back to the South Bronx in the 1970s. Back then, the neighborhood is in the midst of a heroin epidemic, and it's portrayed as a precarious, dangerous place to live. The South Bronx, it has all the superlatives. Highest crime, poorest people, greatest unemployment, worst blight, and the world's record for arson. The city government neglects the Bronx, including the borough's fire department, which leads pretty quickly to vacant buildings all over the Bronx being abandoned and left to burn if they caught fire. Once that smoke on the horizon signified industry, progress, jobs, now it means someone is burning down a building. And heroin is everywhere. It's been around for a while, but after Vietnam, where some soldiers used it, it's even more prevalent. And in the early 70s, the NYPD is rife with corruption. This is a New York City policeman getting paid off. 
taking bribe money from a man representing a house of prostitution. He was also the first witness at this week's public hearings. It wasn't just him, he said, it was everybody. I never knew a plainclothesman yet that was in plainclothes for more than two months that wasn't on the pad. Officers are taking confiscated heroin and reselling it on the street. In the South Bronx, the NYPD is literally selling heroin out of their squad cars. And then, in 1971, this happens. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. President Nixon officially declares war on drugs. He basically makes the case that inner-city crime is spiking because of drugs, and that Vietnam vets in places like the Bronx are getting hooked on heroin. But decades later, one of his advisors, John Ehrlichman, says it was actually a way for Nixon to target his perceived enemies, hippies and black Americans. Every major drug scare we've had in the United States history has been attached to race, be it Chinese and you know, immigrants and opium, you know, Irish Catholics and liquor prohibition, Mexicans and marijuana in the 1930s, African-Americans with cocaine in the early 20th century, then cocaine again in the 1980s. It's always been about race. Professor Samuel Kelton Roberts studies the history of drug laws in the United States and how racism affects how users are treated. He also studies how heroin spreads through different communities, like the South Bronx. Nixon's war on drugs led to mandatory minimum sentences for drug possession, which has had a huge impact on people of color who are more likely to be targeted by police. As of 2016, the last year on record, 76% of people in federal prison for drug offenses are black or Latino. The government's response to drug use was and still is punishment, not treatment. In the late 1960s in the South Bronx, if you were struggling with a heroin problem, your options for treatment were slim to none. Which is why in 1970, people from the Bronx tried something different. Uh, my name is Cleo Ranallen Silvers Painter, which uh, means that I have a couple of husbands. <laughs> I came from a very uh, lower middle class, working class, African-American community in Philadelphia. But in her early 20s, she moves to New York. I was the first African-American woman, VISTA volunteer. And um, I was assigned to the South Bronx. VISTA is a government program like the Peace Corps, where volunteers are sent to communities around the U.S. One of Cleo's jobs was to work with the New York City Housing Authority. The Bronx is only 100 miles from where she grew up in the Philly suburbs. But for her, moving there is like entering a totally different world. I did not face the kind of, of poverty that existed in the South Bronx. Housing conditions were shocking, horrendous. There were children getting bitten by rats. There were ceilings falling. There was no heat and hot water in the winter. There were roaches and rats everywhere in people's homes. During her free time, she works with the Black Panthers as a community organizer. She also sells the Panthers newspaper, which is how the group got their message out to the streets and promoted their rallies and free food programs. Passing out the newspaper one day, she meets this teenager. My name is Vicente Alba. My friends call me Panama. Back then, he's 15 years old and addicted to heroin. Okay, so I'm selling newspapers in front of the hospital, and there's every day two guys who were 
obviously drug addicts because they were both nodding out. One of them was like in his early 20s and one was 15. And at first, he tries to hit on her. And the 15-year-old had a big old mouth and he kept saying, you're so fine, look at you with them hot pants on. Come over here, baby, let me talk to you. He keeps at it for a while, catcalling and trying to get her attention. She notices him sitting in the street, nodding out, but mostly ignores him. Then, on like the fifth day in a row, a police car drives up, and I said to Panama, I said, come here, I want to show you something. And I took him, and I said, let's walk a little bit closer to the police car, because I, don't, I want you to be able to really see this. And I showed him the police selling the heroin out of the police car to other drug addicts. He was shocked. You know, and she says, you hate the cops so much, look who you give your money to. <laughs> you know? And, and, and that got me, that, that really upset me. It upset me about me, you know? And I mean, it was a while longer before I stopped, but I always remembered that. From this point on, Cleo and Panama are friends. I am Panamanian born. I arrived in New York and uh, all my friends were Puerto Rican. So since I was the only non-Puerto Rican, everybody called me Panama. And it stuck with me. Panama came from a family that was politically active. They moved to New York when he was 11, but back home in Panama City, they'd run a boarding house for pro-Castro Cubans. And he grew up idolizing communist revolutionaries like Che Guevara. But when he got to the Bronx, he didn't exactly fit in. What I actually arrived to was a pretty segregated community. They made you feel very unwelcomed. And later, he started doing heroin. When I arrived, heroin was around, and it became very prevalent. You got it in school, you went to school, you went to the bathroom, you copped dope. I used to uh, search out for the best heroin. I did a lot of walking. And in that walking, I met Cleo Silvers. After Cleo's Vista service, she gets a job at Lincoln Hospital. Back then in the South Bronx, Lincoln Hospital served 400,000 people, most of them poor. It was built in 1839 to treat former slaves who were coming to New York from the South. By the middle of the 20th century, the building was condemned because it was falling apart. And when Cleo is working there, there are other problems too. This is Professor Roberts from Columbia again. Descriptions of Lincoln Hospital in the 1960s ranged from an affront to medical practice, a blight on the Hippocratic Oath was another one, it was widely reputed to be a quote-unquote butcher shop. This is the emergency room. Doctors who staff it say it takes on the appearance of a nightmare on Friday and Saturday nights, with only a handful of physicians to handle a flood of emergencies. You would really avoid sending anyone you love to Lincoln Hospital. What we want this rally for is to express our desire to have community worker control of Lincoln Hospital. 
That's the head of the Young Lords in the Bronx. They supported Latino empowerment and tried to help their community. And in 1970, they protested the conditions at Lincoln Hospital. It's a contradiction for them to say we serve the people and to believe in the Hippocratic Oath. And what we call that is the hypocritical oath. What we're asking for is, in, in short, is worker community control of Lincoln Hospital so that we can control the institutions that determine our lives and deaths. You could easily go any weekend, a Friday, Saturday, or Sunday evening, and find people just laid out in the emergency room who had been there for 72 hours waiting to be seen. Addiction treatment at the hospital, it's virtually non-existent. So one night, Cleo and some other Black Panthers start talking, and the idea of doing something to address heroin addiction comes up. They connect with the young lords who have the same priorities. It is obvious that our people of El Barrio do not bring in the reported 300 tons of illegal drugs that entered America last year. The man himself is directly responsible for keeping us high. Together, they all decide they want a detox program, and they're going to do it themselves. And everybody agreed that we had to do something about it and had to be done now, and it had to be dramatic. So they plan to take over Lincoln Hospital, where Cleo works. We planned to take over the nurses' residence in the mental health center and demand a drug rehabilitation program. It's a symbolic action as much as anything, because Lincoln Hospital stands for a lot of what's wrong in the Bronx. Poor health care, untreated addiction, government negligence. And they said, well, who are we going to get to be in our program? Which, which community people, which heroin addicts are we going to have? And I, by that time, told them, well, you know, I know some really great candidates who really, right now, want to get off of drugs. Like Panama. I was struggling with myself about stopping shooting heroin. I wanted to stop, but I had to make the decision. And Cleo had told me, when you decide to stop, give me a, a, a call. I will help you. I will support you. And I'll never forget this. It was November 9th, 1970. I called Cleo and I told her, Cleo, I'm going to shoot my last bag of dope and I'm going to stop. Leo tells Panama that the next morning he should go to the hospital. When he arrives, it's surrounded by police. The takeover is already underway. I made my way inside, and I told Cleo, I'm here, and she says, are you ready? I said, yes. Cleo says they basically just walked in and started setting stuff up. Several young lords also took over the administration offices and barricaded themselves in. This was after a lot of planning. So they also have friendly doctors and nurses and security guards ready to help them out. The upper floors of the hospital have dormitory-style rooms where the nurses and doctors can sleep when they're not on duty. During the takeover, this whole area gets transformed into a makeshift detox center with beds for new patients like Panama. The activists are mostly young people. There were hundreds of police outside in riot gear, but on the inside, the Panthers and Young Lords are running security, and the vibe is friendly. So old ladies sent pots of food over. We had clothes. We had 
everything that you would need. We set it up with tables and chairs. The plan is for Panama to be one of the first people to help detox from heroin. There's a number of physicians and nurses who are also involved, so they have access to sedatives. Methadone is one of the most effective drugs to ease withdrawals. It's a synthetic opioid like fentanyl, but it doesn't really get you high if you already have a tolerance to opioids. It just keeps you from getting sick. You know, one thing was my physical withdrawal was being dealt with, but emotionally, psychologically, I kept thinking about going, I, I want to go get high one more time, you know. I, I want to do that again. I want, I want that feeling again. I need that feeling again. At the end of that first day, Panama tries to head home where he might use heroin again. I was walking out and Cleo said, no, 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 you're coming with me. And she took me to her house. And I spent the night at her house. I essentially held Panama in my arms for three days while he detoxed. Detox is just the first stage in treatment. It can be dangerous, but if it's done right, it can minimize some of the most miserable withdrawal symptoms, like diarrhea and vomiting. Fentanyl users go through the exact same kind of withdrawal symptoms. Avoiding those symptoms is one of the main reasons people continue to use. Cold turkey is like, really, you're ill, you're, you're, you're pain all over your body. This is a very hard thing to do. Back in the day, takeovers of public buildings like this were actually pretty common. And usually, the powers that be would let people do their thing until the protest fizzled out. Cleo says on the second day of the takeover, the young lords were negotiating with the cops, but it didn't go anywhere. While they're negotiating, the police try to sneak into the building and arrest one of the young lords. They tried to sneak a pig in to yank one of the lords out. I'm gonna have to leave now because they're trying to mobilize now. I have to go deal. Part of the police are coming out right now. But the cops don't kick anybody out, and a lot of people start showing up. We had people standing in line. There were hundreds of, of uh, drug addicts standing in line to get into the program because they heard about it through the community. You know, they heard it through the grapevine. Drug users are coming from New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Long Island, all over the place. There are very few resources. Patients like Panama are keeping things running, doing stuff like security. And some of the actual doctors from the hospital are also pitching in. We had doctors who had stolen equipment and so that they could give uh, medical examinations to the drug addicts as, as they came in. But not all of the doctors are into the takeover. I do think my main objection against the uh, Think Lincoln Group, etc., is that their methods are terribly objectionable. That's the former chief of pediatrics at Lincoln. They threaten body harm. And, and the fact is that they have absolutely no expertise to judge what is needed. But other employees are sympathetic. Security guards are ordered to kick out the protesters, but then they sneak them back in. Dr. Edmund Rothschild of the Health and Hospitals Corporation. And other physicians publicly support the takeover. But if you look at the health delivery system for poor people in this city today, and in other cities in the country, it's difficult to imagine how it could be worse or how it's going to get much better 
without significant revolutionary input of a political nature. The detox program itself works like this. They start people on a high dose of methadone and then wean them off over the course of 10 days, which is really fast and kind of dangerous by today's standards. But this is relatively new, and the activists running the detox center are figuring it out as they go. People were staying up all night um, because people were coming in 24 hours a day. That's the other thing. It was a 24-hour day program. I don't think I slept for like a week or something. The methadone helps Panama manage his addiction. But I was so involved in the course of the day and learning so much that that helped me get through. At some point, somebody at the detox center reads an article about acupuncture being used to treat addiction in Asia. So Panama and some others take a trip to Chinatown. But your chart for the acupuncture, I bought acupuncture needles and began practicing how to hit the lung point on the ear amongst ourselves. Panama ends up being the guinea pig. They cheated me, you know, in my ear. And what I found is that I found myself very relaxed. Really relaxed. And I remember because I had a date and I had to call the girl and tell her, listen, I'm sorry, I can't see you tonight because I just can't. <laughs> I just have to go home and relax. Yeah. The way Panama sees it, the takeover has two main goals, helping heroin users get sober and convincing them to get involved with activism. The conditions that had led them to seek escapism were conditions that needed to be changed. And they had the capacity to contribute to that change. Putting Panama on security and having him help figure out new treatments is part of a bigger strategy. The young lords and Black Panthers don't just want to get people off of heroin. They want them to feel like they have agency, like they have options. That was the whole point, is to defy the system. So it's scary. Yes, it's adrenaline. It's unclear exactly how long the standoff lasted. Some people say a few days, others a couple weeks. But after a while, hospital leadership starts to come around. We, made it, we went to administration and said, now we have taken over the nurses' residence. We have an established program going on. Negotiations between the young lords and the hospital's administration are still underway. And more and more hospital workers are being attracted to the Young Lords program for hospital service improvement. Eventually, the hospital administration agrees to let the detox program keep operating. They even agree to fund the detox center, but the money doesn't come right away. That drags on for about another six months, kind of like a, a checks in the mail kind of thing. There were, had been arrests along the way, but you know people were released. Even without the money, they keep going. So it's just volunteers volunteer physicians, volunteer nurses, volunteer lay workers, all keeping this place going because they know that this delay in funding could be what kills them. And they're determined not to let that happen. So they just work for no money. Eventually, Panama and the other activists finally start getting paychecks for their work at Lincoln Detox. The program that started out as a radical takeover officially becomes part of the hospital. 
The program continues for seven years. They weren't great about keeping records, but it's safe to say thousands of people were treated. But the ending was messy. The 47 workers of the Lincoln Hospital Drug Unit, which was shut down this week, have filed suit against the mayor and the Health and Hospital Corporation. The unit was closed following accusations that the program was poorly managed. The mayor moved to shut it down in 1978, citing mismanagement and wasteful spending. Panama and Clio say that's not true, that the city leadership just wanted to kick the hippies and drug users out of the hospital. It's hard to know what really happened at the end. But Lincoln went down in history as something that radically changed how people treat addiction. They were not perfect at all, particularly in those early years. But that's, I think, what makes them more admirable. Because if you do something and you're always perfect at it, it probably means you've done nothing creative. You haven't risked anything at all. version of the detox program is still around today, but it's not part of Lincoln Hospital anymore. In fact, there's no mention of the takeover in the official history of the hospital. Cleo and Panama don't live in New York anymore. Panama retired to Puerto Rico, but he's still helping opioid users. He hands out needles and other supplies to underserved communities on the island. Cleo lives in Tennessee, and the fentanyl crisis is on her mind. I know that oh, the opioid uh, epidemic is, is really, really a huge problem. She says the government should be taking the lead in fighting the epidemic. But if they fail... Then to take it in your own hands and really do something about it. And it probably has to be done on a small scale from community to community. I don't think it can be done uh, on, a, on a big national scale. When we spoke to her, she said that the country's sympathy for current opioid users has a lot to do with the fact that many of them are white. She thinks that if black and brown communities were the only ones with high opioid use, the response would be different. If opioid addiction was in Harlem, okay, and, and on the south side of Chicago, it would be quiet. There would not be a crisis. It would be those people are doing something bad again. Really, I think the lesson of Lincoln Detox and the legacy of Lincoln Detox is the power of community health and of community organization at a time when the fabric of society was under intense assault from structural and political forces. Uh, well, it definitely changed the atmosphere in the South Bronx. It definitely uh, gave people and our children and the young people in the South Bronx, the, the idea, the concept that we can do things, we can make change, we can change our lives, things can get better. I probably should say here that we don't always win. We were winning then. We were the triumphant in demanding and taking over things and making things happen, but we were not always successful. Uh, and it's not always easy. Three hundred and ninety-one overdose deaths here in the Bronx last year, and that's twenty-nine more than twenty seventeen. The Bronx still has a problem with opioids, and today it's even worse. And fentanyl was again involved in sixty percent of all overdose deaths. 
Officials telling us 50% of large fennel seizures are now coming through the Bronx, with 80% of stronger but similar fennel analog seizures also coming from the Bronx. In 2018, the rate of overdose deaths in the Bronx was about 13% higher than the rest of New York City. So what would a radical response to fentanyl look like? Taking over a hospital like Clio and Panama did at Lincoln would be crazy today. The police would probably send in a SWAT team. But the spirit of what they were trying to accomplish, that still lives on with what's happening now. Back in the 70s, the big focus was helping users get off of drugs. But fentanyl is so much stronger. The challenge isn't just getting people into treatment, it's keeping them alive. And to do that, people are still taking matters into their own hands. Activism is just, I, I just don't get the point of activism. Just do the thing. On the next episode of Painkiller. Points, points. We spend time with a couple guys going into homeless encampments to pass out clean needles and a drug that can reverse overdoses. Yeah. Let's, let's uh, can try. Can some uh, 29s, please? Yeah, sure. And right along with medical investigators as they respond to fentanyl overdoses in San Francisco. And when is the last time you saw her alive today? In the afternoon, she was sitting next to you. I was giving her water. Okay. Then I, then I was tired. I've been staying up with her all night. Okay. Are you the one who called 911? <laughs> okay. Okay. And we look for a way out of this crisis. Painkiller, America's Fentanyl Crisis, is a Spotify original production in partnership with Vice News. It's hosted and reported by me, Keegan Hamilton. From Vice News, Jesse Alejandro Cottrell is our producer. Editing by Annie Aviles. Sound design and original scoring by Steve Bone, with help from Pran Bandy. Kate Osborne and Annie Aviles are our executive producers. From Spotify, executive producers are Liz Gately and Erica Clark. Supervising producer is Jake Kleinberg. Associate producer is Baron Farmer. Additional production on this episode by Marissa Schneiderman and Sophie Kazis. Tape syncs by Alexander Ritchie and Juan Carlos Davila. Thanks to Joyce Rivera and the staff at St. Anne's Corner for harm reduction, Bridget Brennan and the Office of the Special Narcotics Prosecutor for the City of New York, and Ray Donovan and Aaron McKenzie Mulvey at DEA New York. Jenna Bliss shared audio with us from her documentary, The People's Detox, about Lincoln Detox. Leah Giussino provided archival support. To see videos and photos from our reporting and go even deeper into the story, check out our website, painkiller.vice.com. If you're struggling with drug addiction and want to get help, call SAMHSA's National Helpline, 1-800-662-HELP. That's 1-800-662-4357. Or visit findtreatment.gov. <laughs>